Donald Trump has been criminally indicted again, this time by state prosecutors in Georgia. The former president, along with 18 co-defendants, is accused of committing multiple felonies, including leading a criminal enterprise to overturn the 2020 election results to keep himself in power. Tonight, how the DA is using a law often associated with mobsters as central to her case and how much jail time it could mean for the former president. This special edition of Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. Donald Trump has been indicted yet again, this time over alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election in the state of Georgia. The former president is facing 13 felony charges implicating him as the head of a sweeping conspiracy to reverse his election loss in that state. Mr. Trump and 18 co-defendants, including former New York City mayor and Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani and his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, are all charged under Georgia's RICO, Racketeering Act, a law often used to prosecute organized crime. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has ordered Mr. Trump and his alleged co-conspirators to turn themselves in by next Friday. This is now the fourth criminal case against the former president and current GOP frontrunner. He's now facing a total of 91 charges in Georgia, Florida, New York, and Washington, D.C. And joining us tonight with analysis of the latest and some say most serious indictment, as well as the mounting criminal charges facing Mr. Trump ahead of the election, are B.J. Bernstein, a criminal defense attorney and a former prosecutor in the state of Georgia. Also, Professor Daniel Richmond, a former federal prosecutor himself and a professor of law at Columbia Law School. And Ellis Hennigan, a frequent guest, good friend, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, New York Times bestselling author and political analyst. Welcome to all of you. Uh, it's been a busy couple of days here with legal news, and, and we're hoping that you all can help us understand this a little bit better. So thanks for joining all of us. And Dan, I'm going to start with you, if I can, and ask you to assume your role as professor. People are puzzled about this, the, the so-called RICO statute, racketeering law. I've heard people say, well, wait a minute, how can that be used here? That's just used for the mob and drug cartels, right? Uh, let me ask you to help answer that question by explaining to us generally, not necessarily this, this case, generally, what is this statute? What's its purpose and how does it work? It is true that the RICO statute has its origins on the federal side back in, in 1970 in an effort to target traditional organized crime. But it's been used so many different ways since then and has parallel statutes, as we see here, in, in quite a few states. The idea of the RICO statute really is to create a legal framework to put a very large group of people and set of charges together. 
Um, ordinarily, when you put a bunch of people in a room at court and you claim there's a conspiracy, there's a temptation, particularly on the part of judges, but to some extent on the part of jurors, to sort of split this up. Um, this doesn't quite hold together, even though you can say that all these activities are related. But what RICO statutes do is really announce legislatively that we are completely open, both from a judicial perspective and a jury perspective, to a complex conspiracy in which many different people assume many different roles, but are connected in a important way to achieve a criminal end. BJ, let me ask you then from your perspective here, as a former prosecutor in Georgia, now a noted, as I mentioned, noted trial attorney, criminal civil trial attorney, when you're looking at the DA's use of this statute here as sort of the overarching statute, it, is it unusual? Has it been used, let's say fairly recently, or even by this district attorney to prosecute other types of crimes? Absolutely. I mean, RICO in Georgia is used for a lot of things. And part of that is actually Georgia's law is different from the law of other states and the feds, which makes it much easier to go after people. Um, I have been part of RICO cases, both on the, on the federal side and the state side. And Georgia allows the schemes to be much shorter um, and it allows the indict indictment of individuals. Um, in particular. And so obviously that's what we're seeing down here in Georgia is a slew of people who are, um, and this is, you know, we've all known this is probably coming, but once I saw the indictment, I was like, wow, you know, they are, there's a lot involved in this. And Georgia has a statute that, you know, if the federal government tried to do this the same way, it's not necessarily able. So it is very unique um, that our district attorney um, has handled it this way, except, you know, it's allowed under Georgia law. And have, have you seen some other types of cases? Again, I, I mentioned in the beginning, you hear people being puzzled about this, saying, well, this is not a mob case, this is not a drug cartel. Ha have you seen other types of cases other than those where the district attorneys have utilized the RICO statutes? You, you know, it, it can be for all types of things. I mean, there's sometimes a drug situation. I mean, the, Folks like, there was a time period, and the other lawyers may know this, sometimes there's things that are kind of in style, so to speak. Um, and a couple of years ago, especially on child tra trafficking cases in Georgia, um, there was use of the RICO statute. So it's been used in different ways that, you know, it doesn't fit the TV idea of what racketeering is. Ellis, let, let me come to you for, for a, a big picture political thought here, if we can. Well, it's we a big talking, deal. Well, let me, let me ask you this first, and then I'll get you, get you for, for that. But, but to, to sort of launch this, in let's call it the pre-Donald Trump era, if a presidential candidate was confronted with one indictment, two indictments, three indictments, four <laughs> indictments here, what... In the past, generally speaking, what would the impact have been on that candidate's candidacy? Uh, the end, goodbye, get out of here. I'm sick of using the word unprecedented, but Jack, I, yes, it's unprecedented, if that's what you're asking. And, and your sense, how and why has this, this notion of this would have happened in the past, 
doesn't apply anymore. How have we come to that spot? Well, because Donald Trump has a unique grip on a significant portion of our fellow American citizens. People are are standing by him. It may not be a majority of Americans, but it sure is a, a passionate and significant minority. And as long as those people are, are, are still with him, as long as they're not chased away by these now four indictments, he's a viable political figure. He's a, a major leader in the country and he ain't going nowhere. Dan, back to you. And, and again, back to the, the RICO statute here. And, and I think you mentioned and the, the language is that it's uh, a criminal enterprise. And again, I'm, I'm sure people who don't have legal backgrounds will be looking at this case and saying, once again, th this doesn't sound to me like a criminal enterprise. What can the term criminal enterprise mean generally? And, and, and what's your sense of, of what it means in this case? Technically speaking, a criminal enterprise can be all sorts of things. In fact, in the federal system, and I suspect elsewhere, in many cases, the alleged criminal enterprise isn't what was originally thought of as a clear, very discreet group, like the Gambino crime family or even a crew of the Gambino crime family. In many non-traditional organized crime cases and white collar cases as well, an enterprise is just like a bunch of people, a bunch of people acting in a coordinated way that have common goals, uh, a set of common means, and really are working together to achieve a larger criminal end. So yes, these people don't wear gang colors or participate in weddings as in the Godfather movies altogether. But legally speaking, this isn't unique. And it is almost common to the extent that RICO is used outside, as it long has been outside the traditional organized crime area. BJ, let's take a look at, at some of the other charges. And, and we see the term conspiracy woven throughout this indictment. I would yes. suspect, and, and, and you may also, I would suspect that at some point in time, you might hear, and perhaps from the former president, saying, wait a minute, I, I don't even know some of these people. I've never met some of these people. How can I be charged with conspiring with them? Uh, explain to us the, the nature of conspiracy law and, and how that works when you have a lot of people involved. Well, it doesn't mean that all of us, you have to be in a room together. You know, you're all, it's an enterprise that you are working on. And so you, everybody's working towards something and that allows you know uh, this huge array of one of the largest indictments I've ever seen um, locally in a state court in my 36 years of practicing law, um, where there are so many different counts, um, in addition to just the, the racketeering um, thing here. So it, it, it isn't what we all think about. I always think about it as the mob. And in fact, it's not the mob in that sense. It, it, and certainly in Georgia, it is just a way and, and in other locations of taking something that is not, you know, that, that there is a scheme. It's a There are usually larger multi-defendant cases where all different types of participation make you culpable under the statute. All right. 
Ellis, back to you again for a, a, one of our political questions here. We hear often, especially during presidential campaigns, the, the notion of a, um, a of a post-debate bump, for instance, or a post-rally bump. Here, we've been hearing a, an extraordinary term, and it's it's a post-indictment bump. <laughs> again, how do we explain that? Do you think? And this comes back, I'm sure, to some of what you said previously. But you know, but now I want, I want you to talk about the the real hard politics of polls and numbers. Yeah, it's it's a real thing. I, there really has been, and it, it's provable in, in a whole bunch of different polls. A post indictment Trump for uh, post indictment bump for Donald Trump. It's hard to say that. <laughs> um, and, and here's here's the reason. I, it's the it's the guiding narrative of the Trump story. Right, he presents himself these days as a man who is uh, in there slugging for the people. Of fighting the swamp and the and the deep state and all the evil villains in places like Washington, who are now coming for revenge, picking on him, being unfair, ganging up against him, and so so with each new act, each new indictment, each new criticism, it's just further proof of how the swamp is trying to get its revenge against this this slugging hero. It, it's it's a brilliant story because it encompasses every bad imaginable thing that can happen you say look those are my enemies coming to get me unfairly again dan back to you one of the things we have have seen previewed by the former president is this defense of i i have a first amendment right to speak and you might not agree with me and you might claim that what i have to say is false but i still have that right to get my position and my beliefs out there in the context of a criminal prosecution, is that an absolute defense? Not at all. Um, one of the, the cases, at least in the, in the Second Circuit, that really developed the law nicely was the prosecution of Sheikh Abdul Rahman, who really inspired and had some leadership role with respect to the first bombing at the World Trade Center in 1993. And his point was, yeah, I said inflammatory things, uh, yeah, they had some causal link to what other people did, but this was this was political and religious speech. And that got largely brushed aside in the first instance by the jury and in the second instance by the Second Circuit with a, with a not so strange notion that words can be used to affect crimes. Uh, criminal fraud is generally accomplished through words. Um, causing other people to commit crimes is generally accomplished through words. So the legal system is, is pretty well equipped and has long dealt with situations where words are used to commit crimes. And you know, free speech has its limits when it runs into the use of words to affect criminal actions. BJ, back to you for a second. Uh and to one of the thoughts that, that you offered before, that this is a big indictment. I, I've heard the term sprawling be utilized for this indictment. And of, of course, there's always a question, can an indictment be too big or can the size be helpful for the prosecution? But I guess my, my first question to you is, is you got a lot of co-defendants here. Would you anticipate an attempt by some of them to say, look, I, I want I want out of this. I want to be tried by myself. I don't want to be part of this whole package here. Again, the three of us here have been prosecutors, and, and we know, generally speaking, prosecutors like to throw everybody into the same box. 
But would you expect you're going to see efforts here, BJ, for, for people to say, no, cut me out of this? Well, I, I'm going to give you some breaking news that just happened about in the last 30 minutes with regard to this case as to that. The prosecuting attorney's counsel is having to get another prosecutor to step in for Fonnie Willis as to um, one of the defendants because she um, had a fundraiser for someone running against the lieutenant governor, who is a target here. And um, so now they're looking for and they're about to appoint a special prosecutor for that particular defendant. That's interesting because we had seen that raised in the past as somebody saying an issue. Can you quickly explain how that would work? Well, there's a prosecuting attorney's council in Georgia, and they will go through and reach out to, and there's a list of prosecutors. They don't list it per se, but within the organization, they know who everyone is, who they were the you know, elected DAs. And they will go to one of those that they think is appropriate and is able to do it and will step in and take over the prosecution of that particular defendant. All right. And that's an important point. It's it's not the entire prosecution. It would be that particular defendant to handle the charges and the questioning with regard to them. Yes, exactly. So Fonnie Willis just cannot touch that particular case. Um, and so there will be a change, you know, that will change the idea of everybody being tried together. And, you know, and we're going to see a slew of motions. We haven't gotten oh, yeah. to yet. Yeah. yeah. And I'll, I'll get to the idea of how long this is going to take in a minute. Um, Dan, back to you. An another defense you could anticipate from the former president would be I was acting on advice of counsel. Right? Explain that to us. How far that type of argument can go in a criminal case? Well, it's certainly a legitimate defense, and it really goes to a defendant's state of mind, which, particularly in a case like this, is foundational to how the jury needs to think about the case. And the defense is essentially, you know, I just didn't think I was violating the law. And in fact, this this well-respected person with a law degree told me I wasn't. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I took his word for it, and it obviously served my purpose, but I knew I was acting legally. If a jury buys that, that's a real defense. Um, the challenge here for Trump is that he was surrounded by all sorts of lawyers, many of whom were government lawyers, some of whom were his campaign lawyers, many of whom had really a, a formal responsibilities for giving him legal advice. And essentially, he'd pushed them aside and picked the lawyers he wanted to listen to, um, many of whom were indicted in the Georgia um, indictment. Um, so as a general matter, first, the point is, well, you can't go picking and choosing legal advice and take only that um, serves your interest. Two, your choice of lawyers is interesting because you're picking people who are not officially or formally responsible for giving you legal advice, which suggests that you're really reaching for it. And obviously, um, a challenge, a, a claim of it, rely, advice of counsel is somewhat diminished in front of a jury where those lawyers are charged too. And you're yeah. not necessarily re responsible for knowing that your lawyers are criminals, but it really heightens the force of the prosecution's case that, that this was a guy who was using legal advice from a couple 
outlandish sources as a cover for doing that which he intended to do that was criminal and that he knew was to be criminal. Ellis, back to you for, for again, our, our, our political, political views here. We've seen the other candidates for the Republican nomination, with the exception of a couple, Chris Christie um, and uh, Asa Hutchinson, some others, who have said, no, this should be disqualifying. These should all be disqualifying. We've seen others just kind of try to maneuver delicately around this. With this fourth indictment now, and again, many people are saying this could be the most consequential. I, 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 I'm not so sure we can say that, but some people think that. Are, are you surprised that you're not seeing, or do you think you might now see, and maybe at the upcoming debate where there's some strong suggestion that the former president is not going to participate, might you now see more of the candidates jumping in and saying, this is just too much? Or do you think we've seen the, the positions and they're not going to change much? Yeah, don't hold your breath on that one, Jack. I mean, people keep thinking this is going to be the one that's going to tip it over the edge. But the evidence so far suggests there's nothing that's going to tip it over the edge. These uh, these other candidates, and you're right, you always have to do the Christie exception because he's taking a, a very different and more aggressive approach to his former friend, Donald Trump. But all the others are, uh, are walking very carefully for, for two potential reasons, I think. One is that uh, maybe they harbor dreams of... Uh, uh, serving in some capacity in a in a future Trump administration, and, and maybe more importantly, they see that at the moment he seems to have a grip on a very large percentage of the Republican voters, the folks who are going to turn out to these primaries and caucuses, uh, some number up in the the, the eighty percent, and and they figure, listen, if all these cases end up uh, destroying Trump, I want to be there to inherit his supporters. And so so I don't want to trash the guy they love. I want to tiptoe very carefully, hope that these prosecutors are the ones who uh, execute the hit job and then I'll inherit the supporters. It's uh, unfortunately it's kind of making them all look like wimps, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and I'm sure you're hearing a lot of people jump in and saying that. Uh, BJ, tell us a little bit about the the judge who's been assigned to handle this case, uh, Judge uh, Scott McAfee, fairly new to the bench, but but a a, a very well established background as a as a lawyer. But you said the major thing: very new to the bench. And remember, he, this judge was appointed during the pandemic when we weren't all in court and having his trials, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really the courts here have really only now started to have jury trials in the last few months. So this judge is coming in, um, and none of us really know what to expect in terms of. Um, None of us have any anecdotes of how he handles a courtroom, how he controls it. What's the personality like? There's so many, you know, there are judges who run a very tight ship. There are others who are a little bit less formal. They all have their way of putting their stamp on how the day to day goes. So, yeah. um, and you is- like as as trial lawyers, you like to know who you're in front of. You know, just yes. get a sense. You know, what works here, what doesn't work, how far can I go questioning, where do I have to back off a little bit, uh, you know, how much will will how much will the judge want us to do maybe at a sidebar as opposed to in front of the, the jury. And I, I mentioned the, the judge, former federal prosecutor, former state prosecutor appointed by the Republican governor as the, the state's inspector general. And then, as you said, um, appointed by the Republican governor to this seat on the bench, I think, in, in February. So can, can you imagine just as, as an aside? You know, that's a lot of 
experience as a lawyer, but not so much on a judge. And you're saying, okay, here's one for you to, to handle. Now that you've <laughs> only been on the bench for a few months, what do you think of this one? Hey, uh, BJ, here's another question. Cameras in the courtroom, do we expect them? I, well, it'll be up to the judge. I mean, we do have that in Georgia. I've had cases that have appeared on um, court TV and different things before. Um, that that, but it's up to the judge to determine if that that is the right thing to do. Obviously, the thought down here has been that you know let the public see what is happening, and there is some value to that certainly for people to see and hear, and not just hear it through the the screen of um, reporters. So. Um, Georgia does allow it, and we'll have to see what this new judge does. And Dan, uh, the prosecutor, the district attorney, Fannie Willis, had and announced that she is hopeful to get this thing started within six months. Taking a look at how sprawling this is, realistically, do you think that we might see this get started within six months? I can't claim to know the details of Georgia criminal procedure, but I got to say, that hope seems a little unrealistic. You know, in the first instance, we're already seeing an effort to remove the case to federal court. Um, that's going to take some litigation, um, both on the state side and on the federal side. Um, perhaps there'll be an appeal from that. When you start doing the math of not just that issue, but what one imagines all sorts of other pretrial would claims that can be raised by by Trump and his co-defendants. Um, maybe maybe time goes differently in Georgia than it does in, in, in federal court. Um, yeah. But I'm not seeing that yeah. being very I, realistic. Yeah, I, I, I think we'd all, I, I got a little, I got less than a minute left. Uh, so Elsie, I'm gonna come to you for the last thought here. We could be looking at literally and figuratively then in, in multiple boxes like we're doing here, the trial of, of the former president and all these other co-defendants taking place on camera and an active presidential campaign going on on camera. What can how how do we deal with all of that, I guess, is the question. Josh, you're right to look at the clock. I mean, it really yeah. is at this point a story of the clock, right? Four trains all coming into the station are trying to. Uh, when do they arrive? It's very tough to beat four indictments. And these are these are all yeah. serious indictments. So it really does come down to a question of how it interacts with the campaign. Uh, if Trump is elected, his power to uh, to to save himself from uh, right. conviction right. in prison and federal court and keep an eye on the clock. Yeah, well, th there's a lot more to talk about. And there will be, of course, and I hope that we can get you all together. Uh, BJ, Ellis, Dan, uh, we certainly appreciate your thoughts and your wisdom. You help us enormously to understand all this. So thanks to all of you. Look forward to talking with you all soon. You all say well. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Bye -bye.